We looked at Romans chapter 3. You can keep your, uh, your Bible open to that passage. Um, and we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 too. And one of the reasons that I actually wanted to look at those passages is because there's something, if you turn your bulletin over and look, there's something in those passages that really help us. If, if we want to understand what is the big idea behind Christianity, and, and the name of this message today is Christianity 101. You have it up here. What's the big idea? What is this all about? What is it that we believe? Um, you know, at, at the, the bottom line is that Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news of Christianity is that Jesus Christ came and, and lived a perfect life. He died a horrible substitutionary death. He rose from the grave on the third day. But those events require unpacking. They're so deep, so profound, so meaningful that it requires us explaining their meaning and exploring their meaning. And that's what I want to do today. Um, in fact, let me pull up. I'm all about um, simplification, right? I have kids. They go to school. They have math homework. They bring it home. They need help. I'm pretty good at math. I was pretty good at math. Uh, but when they need help, I have to go back and restudy it, you know? I'm all about the irreducible minimum. I like, I like things simple. Give me the bottom line. Maybe you're like that too. Maybe it's because I'm a little bit OCD. But I want to ask you a question. Which one of those fractions is correct? You can holler out the answer if you know it. Which one? All of them are correct, right? Let me ask you another question, though, okay? Which one is the clearest? Which one of those is the clearest? Have any OCD people in here you can't stand for... Seriously, give it up now. You're in good company today. You can't stand for there to not be uh, the lowest... Thank you. you. You bailed me out, brother. I couldn't think of the name there. Lowest common denominator, simplicity, stupid. Keep it simple, right? Concision, reduce it. What's the irreducible minimum? It's the one on the far right. That's one-third, and it drives me batty for it to be on the left there. Well, Christianity, can, it can be the same thing sometimes. People are telling you things that are true, and they're even valuable, and in some cases, they're necessary. If you ask somebody, hey, unpack Christianity for me. I'm an idiot. I have no clue what it means. And they say, oh, I thought you'd never ask. And they take you on this tour of church tradition and apologetics and complex apologetic arguments uh, and just heavy-duty vocabulary you've never heard. And it's, it's good and in some cases necessary and it's right and it's accurate, but man, it's complex. It's cumbersome. So I want to go all the way to the right side today and say, let's keep it really simple and talk about what Christianity really is. So three, three points today, okay? Point number one. Cursed planet, point number two, helpless rebels, and point number three is going to be um, outside rescue. So the passage that Diane read, from, or excuse me, that Melissa read from Romans chapter three, one of the reasons that I wanted to use that one, if you look on your bulletin, is because it says something that's really interesting. It says, as it is written. Did you catch that? In Romans chapter three, verse nine. Look at verse 10, as it is written. Now, this is the Bible. This is the New Testament. So what's he talking about, as it is written? He's about to tell us uh, the essence of the gospel, but he's pointing back to something as his authoritative source. What's he pointing back to? The Old Testament. This is the Apostle Paul. He wrote this. He was an apostle saved by Jesus. And he's saying, look, I'm about to tell you something very important, but just so you know, I'm not pulling this out of my hat or out of my back pocket. I want you to know, I come to this conclusion on good, proven, uh, valid, authoritative sources. I'm going to what was written 
ages ago. He actually says that several times in this passage. Uh, And at one point he even says, let's see, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Did you hear that? He's pointing you back even further. Some of the the verses that he quotes in, in verses 11 through 18 are from the book of Psalms, but he goes even further than that. The law and the prophets. First five books of the Bible, minor prophets, major prophets. He said, they all testify to what I'm telling you. This is not some new, novel, fandangle doctrine that everybody should be concerned about. God's been telling us this for centuries, for actually thousands of years. So he is pointing back. And I say that because so often people want to know the truth of Christianity. And the answer they get is tradition. Tradition. What's, what's Christianity? What's the message? What's the big idea? Well, it's tradition. Because the church has all these traditions, and we know the church has always been right. And ugh, Time out. No, the church, church hasn't always been right. As a matter of fact, when you read the New Testament, do you know who, who killed the Son of God when he came? He showed up, and he announced that the kingdom of God is here, and I'm the Messiah. You know who murdered the Son of God? The religious people, right, in church, who were banking on their tradition. And Jesus said, your tradition is going to send you straight to hell. You need to get back to the scriptures. So I picked these passages. Romans 3 says, as it is written, two different times. And actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we also read, it also says, uh, in accordance with the scriptures. Did you, did you catch that? It says that two different times. So all of this, we're going way back. We're going to look at what the New Testament says, but we want to go way, way back, and we want to talk about uh, what happened. Because let's just be honest, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Anybody want to dispute or contest that? No. And listen, you don't even have to get somebody that's religious to tell you that. You don't have to go to a church to have somebody tell you, you know, the world's messed up. Things are not the way they should be. You can go to Skid Row and have somebody tell you that, right? Uh, Or you can have somebody who's uh, blessed and wealthy and has sucked all the satisfaction that the world can offer, and they'll tell you that too. Everybody has a worldview. Every single person sitting in a seat this morning in this auditorium, you have a worldview. And a worldview answers three questions, okay? It says, what is the world supposed to be like? What's the world supposed to be like? Are people supposed to get shot up like that happened last week and then the week before that? Is that supposed to happen? No. Are people supposed to be famished and starving to death in third world countries? No. Um, Should it take seven referees to officiate a college football game? (laughs) No. Why? (laughs) Why does it? Because people are dishonest, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what realm of the world you go when you see this. Why do we need police officers? Why do you put dead boats on your front doors? Can't we just trust the goodness and the benevolence of humanity? Mm Mm-mm. If you own a business or a store, why do you lock it? Why do you have a house alarm? Why do you get creeped out when somebody comes to your door that you don't know? See, even unbelievers, they have a worldview. They know this world is not right. You can steal an atheist wallet, and he will not be happy. Why? Why not? Because the world's not supposed to be like that, man. People are not supposed to be self-centered. People aren't supposed to cut you off in traffic. Right? We all know that. In fact, I got some slides here. Um, by the way, Genesis 3.17 tells us when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they broke his holy commandment and they ate the forbidden fruit. You know, he, God took man and woman, Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden, beautiful garden. The name Eden means uh, delight, garden of delights. You know, in a garden, there's beauty, 
and there's rest. And that's exactly what was there. Everything was as it should be. Man and woman related to God perfectly. They related to one another perfectly. They related to the world perfectly. They related to themselves perfectly. And then they broke God's commandment. Remember, they ate the forbidden fruit. And then God came to call them into account. He walked in the garden like he had with them every day. And he said, Adam, where are you? And Adam and Eve, they ran. They ran away and they hid and they tried to fix their problem. Remember, they sewed fig leaves on to hide their nakedness and their shame. And God confronted them. And when he found out what they had done, he told Adam, the whole earth because of you is cursed. It's cursed. And even unbelievers, they may not use that language, but they would agree something's wrong with the planet. Now, when I say the earth is cursed, you probably think of things like this. All of this, by the way, these slides I'm showing you happened just this month or last month. Some of it is local. Wildfires in California killed nine people. Why? Why do things like this happen? Because the earth is cursed. Because man brought a curse on the earth. We sinned. And, you know, when God was at the center, all of life flourished. There was harmony. There was peace. There was no conflict. There was no rebellion. But man sinned, and with that brought death, and with that brought chaos. So we got wildfires. You know what that is? Lava from a volcano in Hawaii, right? Earlier this year, I think that happened. Romans chapter 8 says the whole earth groans, like there's this tremendous pressure. It's groaning. Animals are attacking each other. They're attacking humans. Tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes. Those things didn't happen before Adam and Eve sinned. Hurricane Florence did that, and then Hurricane Michael wreaked havoc. We just had a team that came back from Albany, Georgia, engaging in disaster relief. Why are all these things happening? Because the planet is cursed, right? The planet is groaning. But I don't want you to just think about that. I want you to go deeper than that. Deeper than that. Because this curse is not just about nature and animals and weather. It goes much deeper than that. This, this curse affects us. It's on the inside of us. This happened, I think I may have mentioned it in a sermon recently. This happened just in DeBerry. This young man strangled his mother over an argument they had over a, a grade that he got in school. I won't go into all the details. It's pretty disturbing what he did. Why? Now, you can ask an unbeliever, is that the way life's supposed to work? Are, are young men supposed to treat their mothers like that? I don't care if they're a Christian or if they're not religious. What are they going to say? No. Children should respect their parents and obey them and honor them. This happened last week, right? Thousand Oaks, bar attack, 12th mass shooting since Pittsburgh. Why do some people feel the need to take their anger and their rage and maybe their mental instability and go public and get violent with it? Why do they have to get a gun and start killing people? Why does that happen? Because the curse has trickled down and is affecting all of us, Right? Uh, even the vote count. I mean, I mean, check if you really want to know close up and personal. We live in a in a democracy, right? We can't even have an election. We can't even have an election and trust everybody to be honest on either side of the aisle, right? And count all the votes and get it done civilly. It can't happen. Why? Why can't that happen? You got to ask yourself that question because this planet is cursed, and humanity has rebelled against God. And that, if, that affects all of us. We see what Spurgeon called the slime of Adam's rebellion covers the whole earth. All of us, if we're honest, we know that. Even unbelievers will tell you the world, what's the world supposed to be like? Not this. It's not supposed to be like this. So the question you have to ask yourself is, well, how did it get this way? What happened? In the Bible, as it is written, in accordance with the scriptures, the law and the prophets bearing testimony, what happened is, 
God was on his throne and he was at the center and all of life flourished. But when Adam and Eve rebelled, they dethroned God. They put themselves on the throne. And ever since then, chaos has ensued, right? That's what happened. Romans chapter 3 is really interesting. Um, That list he gives, did you read that? Nobody is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Eugene Peterson wrote the message version of the Bible. That was his translation. And he summed up that, uh, he just went to be with the Lord, by the way, a couple of weeks ago. He summed up that passage by saying this, there's nobody living right, not even one. They never even give God the time of day. And she loved the way he puts it in street leather for us and street clothes. Nobody on this planet is living right. Nobody. Nobody, the Bible says. That's offensive to hear that, but Christianity acknowledges that and recognizes that. Not only from experience we see outside of us and around us and among us, but inside of us, right? Nobody's living right. We're not even living right. I was telling somebody the other day, Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian apologist, he said, if people were to stand before God on the judgment day and the standard by which they'll be judged will be God's law, if you just even take God's law, God forbid, I speak as a man, and lay it aside for a minute, And God's going to say, I'll tell you what, I'm going to judge you, but I'm going to judge you based on your own own standards. He says, every time you've ever said the word should, must, or ought, I had this built-in secret recorder that that kicked on, right? And I'm going to judge you based on your own standards. Anytime somebody made you angry and you said, people shouldn't do that. Somebody cut you off in traffic, idiot, he shouldn't have done that. Or you're child uh, disobeyed you and annoyed you and kids shouldn't do that. He's going to play the tape. And you know what? You couldn't even pass your own standards, let alone God's standards. And he was right. He was right. We all know that that the whole world, Romans chapter 3 says, the whole world stands guilty before God. The Bible says that the law of God stops our mouths because everyone wants to protest their own goodness. I know it says everybody's unrighteous, but I'm a pretty good person, right? You know, I love my neighbor and goodness, man, I go to soup kitchen, I volunteer and I bring food. Um, but the law is about our relationship with God, not just about other people. And the Bible says there's nobody righteous. Nobody has loved God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And listen, beyond that, beyond that, if you look around, you see just this restlessness, right? Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20 is one of my favorite verses because it so succinctly describes the people in the world today that you see. And it says this, unbelievers, or it says the wicked, the wicked are like the sea when it's troubled and it cannot rest and its waves go back and forth and cast up mire and dirt. There's this restlessness that you see, right? Even the people that are supposed to be the happiest, sometimes they're the most miserable. King Solomon in the Old Testament wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He had everything. He had gold, he had wine, he had wealth, he had women. He had 700 concubines and 300 wives. I mean, it was like jackpot for him, right? In every way possible for an unbeliever to think. And he wrote a book and he said, this is all vanity. All this is, it leaves me empty and meaningless and sad and dejected. 
I mean, for the people that are chasing the gold at the end of the rainbow, go talk to Solomon. He's been there and there's no gold there. I watched a documentary the other day on Netflix. Um, I grew up, you know, in the 90s and that was when the MTV was, was taking off and there's this really, really probably rotten band. I hope you never listened to them, but I did back in the day before I was a Christian called Nine Inch Nails. And their lead singer was, uh, his name was Trent Reznor. And they did an interview with him in the early 90s when he struck it big, man. I mean, their band just hit it big. Everybody was listening to them. Their videos were on. He was the lead singer, and uh, it was in the early 90s. And this is what he said. This is just being, he was being totally honest with the interviewer. He said, since I've got everything I've wanted, now I can put a zero after the number of record sales I've had, or I can play at a 200,000-seat hall instead of a 2,000-seat hall, and I can be on MTV a thousand times a week rather than once a month. And I thought that maybe when I reached all these goals, I'd find some sort of peace. But I didn't. It's like I'm more miserable now than I ever was. He was in his 20s when he said that. Don't you love it when somebody's just brutally honest like that? He was in his 20s when he said that. He said this recently. We're just animals left to our own devices. Left to our own devices, we'll kill each other. We're only out for ourselves anyway. This illusion that we're more than that is nothing but that, an illusion. <laughs> so as a 20-year-old, he was honest. And as a 50-something-year-old, he was still honest. What's he saying? We're all living for ourselves. It's just what Romans 3 says. All we have gone astray. You know, that's what... Maybe the verse that, that a lot of people have memorized, Romans 3.23, it says this. It says, for all have what? sinned, and then it goes beyond that and says what? And fallen short of the glory of God. you ever thought what that verse means? You know the word for sin in the New Testament is hamartia. And you know what it means? It means to miss a mark. It's, it's an archery term actually. And it means to miss the mark. The mark for our existence is the glory of God. Everyone should be living for God's glory. That's why he created us. And Paul in Romans chapter 3 is saying, we've all fallen short of that. What's that mean? Well, we're still shooting arrows. We're still living and we still have a purpose and we still have a desire, but it's God's glory should be the target and it's not even, we're not even aiming at it. We're aiming for, you know, wealth or for prestige, fame, notoriety, power, authority, recognition, attention. We're shooting everywhere, but at God's glory. We've missed the mark. We've missed the mark for which we were created. And because we've missed the mark, all of life is crumbling and falling apart. All of it is. That's what the Bible teaches. So everyone's worldview, they answer it in different ways. But Christianity has the most honest, you know, actually, and compelling answer. Why is the world this way? Was it supposed to be like this? No. What happened? Sin. Man and woman rebelled against God. And all of life is, is falling apart. God says, this is how life works best. When I'm on my throne and I'm in the center of your life, the center holds. But when you dethrone me and you substitute yourself for my kingdom, you put yourself on the throne, all of life crumbles and misery ensues and heartache. And he was right. So that's the first point is a cursed planet. You know, there's, you see death everywhere, but you also see sin, selfishness, shooting, killing, looting, all of that. And all of that is because of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. He said, out of the heart proceed sinful thoughts, murder, adultery, covetousness, envy. All those things come from our heart. 
So point number two is this, helpless rebels. Helpless rebels. So the planet is cursed, and we're, we're part of that curse. We're sinners. We've rebelled against God. Um, and here's the second thing. We're helpless. There is nothing we can do about it. But we try, right? We all have our own salvation project. We try to rescue ourselves. We try to swim upstream. I got a funny story to tell you. This is a true story. This happened last week. Why does a preacher always have to say true story? We have a reputation for embellishing things, don't we? <laughs> Last week, I went to the moon, I promise. <laughs> now, check this out. So my good friend, Jeff Eckert, maybe you know him, he calls me up and he says, hey man, uh, there's a couple I've been talking to. Uh, I did their wedding. This guy wants to start his own chartered fishing uh, business and he wants to take me uh, fishing in the ocean. And he said, you can come along. He's got a nice boat so we can go. So I'm like, that's awesome. I love to fish, love to go out on the ocean. Love to get away from my kids for a little bit. And so we did. He got his boat. We docked out at uh, New Smyrna Beach. Beautiful day. I'm going to catch some redfish because my buddy Tal taught me how to do that. And I'm going to feed my whole family. It, 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 sky was the limit. They look promising. So we put over to uh, the jetties over in Ponce Inlet. And I got to tell you, man, I'm, I'm always getting educated. I'm not, I grew up in Arkansas, so I don't really know much about currents and ocean no, you're supposed to respect them. So we threw down anchor over there by the jetties because he said, this is the sweet spot. This is where the redfish are, man. He said, my wife caught like a, you know, 20-something inch red the other day. And I'm like, man, I want to fish right here. So we threw anchor out and it caught. And I'm watching sticks and stuff in the water, like zoom, just zoom by us. I'm like, man, this is a powerful current here. He said, yeah, but don't worry, we're, we're safe. We got the, the motor here and we got the anchor. But the jetties, have you ever been to the jetties? So that's the jetties right there. And we're, you can't really see us, but we're, we're right there, okay? Um, and so we're fishing, we're not catching anything. And he says, you know what, let's pull up anchor and move over a little bit. So we tried to pull up anchor, but our anchor was caught on somebody else's anchor that they had to cut. And the rope was all caught up, so he cut the rope off. And we lost, uh, you know, for, for a minute we had to pull up anchor. We cut the tangle and it went under the boat and got up into the motor, the propeller. So we lost our engine, and all of a sudden, man, those sticks that I saw going by, that's like our boat is one of those sticks, and we're moving fast. And I'm thinking, what's going on here, man? This is like a fun ride. And I see the countenance on the, his name is, is uh, Josh. I saw his countenance, like, grip, grip with fear. And he picked up his CB, and he said, Coast Guard, Coast Guard, Mayday, Mayday, boat in distress, near the rocks, at the jetty, um, I repeat, boat in distress, mayday, mayday. And I'm thinking, what in the world? He's messing with me. This guy's messing with me. This is a joke. And I see his wife, and she starts to cry. And he says, get down the life vest. And I'm, th I'm looking at Jeff. I'm like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> what, what just happened? So she's unzipping life vests, throwing them on. And all of a sudden, the Coast Guard's coming around the corner. And I'm, I'm grabbing the anchor we just put away. And I, th <laughs> I threw the anchor out. And I'm like, we can, we can catch the rocks. And he's like, no, that's, that's not going to work. He's trying to start the engine. It won't work. Rocks are getting closer. And the Coast Guard comes around. Man, I have never been so happy to see the Coast Guard in my entire life. They came, and I've got this little frayed rope. And I'm like trying to throw it. And the Coast Guard's like, sir, step, get out of the way. Get out of the way. He takes this big rescue hook and clips it on the, on the eye of the boat. And they, you know, that thing could probably tow a million cars. It's major horsepower. And uh, so, yeah, that's where we were. This is where we were headed if, if they didn't intervene. And this is actually us. See me? I'm there on the, on the left. Right there is the Coast Guard. There's a tote line. That's me. 
Uh, that's me and Jeff. <laughs> that's me and Jeff. We got a, a, a selfie with the Coast Guard. They rescued us. We couldn't save ourselves, guys. I was trying to throw anchors out. I was trying to help him start the engine. We're getting closer and closer to the rocks. There's absolutely nothing we can do. We're helpless. Helpless. You know what we had to have? We had to have outside help. Somebody had to come and swoop down and rescue us because we were not able to save ourselves. We couldn't do it. We tried. And here's what's interesting to me about the Christian message, okay? Galatians 4.4 says this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem the earth from a curse. Galatians 4 says that. But here's the interesting thing. It says, when the fullness of time had come. Have you ever wondered, why did Jesus come in 30, uh, 30 BC, right? Or 30 AD, whatever the date is. Why did he come then? Why then? Why not? I mean, the whole world was dying in sin. Why not before then? Why not now? Why did he come at, right, at exactly that precise time? Because the Bible says it was the fullness of time. Do you know, have you ever thought about that? Do you know how many Caesars had come and gone? Do you know how many philosophers had come and gone? How many scribes? How many lawyers? Seriously, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that. Where is the wise men? Where are the scribes? Where are the debaters of this age? And the Apostle Paul is almost taunting all the false philosophies and false religions. He's like, all you people who had all the answers, you were going to fix everything. The politicians, all the ideologies, they've come and they've gone and the world is, is it better? Is it a better place or is it worse? And the same thing is true today. You know, every election, and, and hey, I think Christians ought to be in politics. I do. We need some good Christian politicians in office, Right? Sometimes people overpromise, though, what they're, what they're going to do. Listen, guys, we've had thousands of years of people that are going to fix everything that's broken in the world. You can't legislate morality. You can't legislate heart change. It's not going to happen. But when the Apostle Paul wrote that, do you realize Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, 12 different Caesars have come and gone? The brightest, the best, all the experts, they've come and gone. They had all the answers. And where was the world? In shambles. It was in shambles. You know what God said? It's, it's, it's like he's watching our boat get closer and closer to the rocks. And he says, okay, Jesus, you go ahead and go down now. <laughs> Maybe they'll finally acknowledge, okay, we can't do this. We can't fix our hearts. We can't change our hearts. There was a book written called Hope Has Its Reasons. It was a girl and she was talking about her husband was a professor at Stanford, no, Harvard, the big, big Ivy League school. Her husband was a professor there and so she got to audit all the classes for free. And she went to a psychology class and they were talking about, um, let me get this right, psychodynamic psychotherapy was the, was the lecture that day. And the professor was talking about how they helped this, this man who was much older. His whole life had been riddled with trouble, anger, bitterness. And they finally pinpointed what was wrong with him. He was bitter at his, anger, bitter at his mother. He was angry at her for a childhood that he was neglected. Uh, and he couldn't forgive her. And so this professor would say, do you see how psychodynamic psychotherapy helped pinpoint what that man's problem was? And the class is clapping, and this girl that wrote this book raised her hand. And she said, I just want to be honest. She said, I'm not here for credit. I'm auditing, but I couldn't help but just wonder, so what happened to that guy? And he said, I, I beg your pardon? She said, what happened to him? You pinpointed that he was bitter and he was angry. Uh, and that he held resentment against his mother, who was dead by the time they figured all this out. And she said, so how did you help him forgive her? <laughs> and she said the, the professor was visibly, visibly upset. 
and said, I, I don't know why you're asking that. And she said, well, I'm, we're here to help people, right? Psychology is all about helping people. Um, and she said, and I'm all about that. I think it's great. There's some wonderful things you're teaching here, but um, were you able, able to help him? And he said, well, you, you, you can't press your neurotics about forgiveness onto, onto a patient. And she said, I, and, and then some of the other students in the book, it talks about some of the other students were looking around, raising their hand, like, yeah, what the heck? I'm devoting, my, I'm spending $80,000 to get educated here. Are you telling me when it's all said and done, all I can tell him is here's your problem, but I have no... And the professor was getting angry. And he said, well, I guess you tell him lots of luck. And they were like, what? And then he was really visibly shaken. And he said, look, look, let me just tell you. Let me just tell you this. He said, if you came to this department for heart change, you're in the wrong department. And I just appreciate the honesty. I'm not against psychology or philosophy or any of those things. They can tell you what should be, maybe. People shouldn't be bitter at their parents, right? Even though their parents wronged them and abused them and all that. But they can't tell you how to change. They can't. There are limits. Science can't save you. Philosophy can't save you. Psychology can't save you. They have their use, but they also have their limitations. But I will tell you this. If you're looking for heart change, you're in the right department if you came to Christianity, because Jesus is in the business of changing people's hearts and rescuing them. So point one was we're, there's a cursed planet where cursed people live. Point number two is we're, uh, we're helpless to do anything about it, right? And point number three is this. We need outside help. We need somebody to come from out. If the problem's inside, the answer can't be, right? <laughs> if that's where the source of all your problem is, there's rebellion against God in your heart, that can't be where the solution and the answer comes from. So where does it come from? It comes from outside of us. And that's where the passage we looked at, if you look at 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the passage that Melissa read, what does it say? It says, let me read it to you. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you. Do you know what the word gospel means? In Greek, it's right, euangelion. It means good news. It's news. Guys, don't ever forget this. Look, look up here for a minute. This is so important, so I don't want anyone to leave with a confusion about this. This is the, the, the irreducible minimum. This is the three, the two-thirds, whatever that fraction was. Can't reduce it any more than this. Christianity is all about a message, and that message is called the gospel. And the gospel is news. It's good news. It's the best news in the world, okay? It's not good advice, okay? There's a difference. Advice is me telling you to do something to get fixed or to get changed, right? But news is a declaration. Big difference, the gospel is a declaration about something that was done for you on your behalf by somebody else. And it's all grace. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. You didn't do anything to contribute to it. The only thing you did was the sinning. And Jesus is going to do the saving. That's why the gospel is good news. Did, you, did I tell you already that this is the 100 year uh, anniversary of the peace treaty that was drawn up between uh, Germany who surrendered in World War I and all the Allied forces. 100 years to the day, 100 years ago, November 11th, 1918, Germany said, I surrender. And that was signed at 5 a.m. And by 11 a.m., all the fighting had stopped. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you were a soldier, say you're just a kid, 16, I don't know how old you had to be to enlist back then. You're some 17-year-old kid with a rifle in your hand and you're shaking in your boots and you've never seen a day of hand-to-hand -hand combat in your life and you're about to be sent out to what you know is your death, okay? And suddenly news comes. 
And they say, hey, 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 take that uniform off, soldier. Lay that rifle down. We're done. War's over. It's over. There's peace. How good would you feel? (laughs) Wouldn't you feel pretty good? Wouldn't you be grateful for the person that ended that war? And what if the announcement, and you say, oh, how did it happen? Well, Germany surrendered. They surrendered, but why? Oh, because somebody somebody else came and, and did the fighting for us, and the victory is secure. We didn't do anything. We didn't make any contribution to it. We, we stood behind the sidelines and we watched somebody else go and fight on our behalf. Somebody that could actually conquer the greatest enemy, which is sin and death. See, that's what the good news of the gospel is. That's what Paul's talking about here. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. You see what Paul's saying? saying... Our rescue depended on a person, not an idea, not a religion, not a philosophy. It's a person. God's, to, the solution to our problem was a person. God sent a person. His name is Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died a horrible death. He rose from the grave. And if you don't believe me, you can go corroborate this story, Paul says, with about 500 people who are still around to tell you they witnessed it firsthand. Aren't you glad Christianity is not once upon a time or in a hole under the ground in Middle Earth, or in a galaxy far, far away, no, it's a historical event. The planet was cursed because of an event that happened in a garden, and the world was saved because of an event that Jesus Christ came and secured for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And, you know, whenever whenever I'm interviewing people that want to be baptized or want to join the church, I'm always trying to get that from them. Seriously, if I can't hear it, I don't have a piece about it. I don't know if I can baptize you. You don't have a clear testimony. If I ask people, hey, so you're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay, great. Uh, Tell me how you came to be a Christian. And they say, well, you know, I pray all the time, and and I go to church, and I'm a pretty good guy, and then I feel like I'm really close to God. You hear the buzzer going off? That's good advice. That's not good news. That's not Christianity. That's every other religion in the world. Well, I, I, I follow the steps. I'll climb my way up to God. I'm doing better and better. I'm obeying Him and I'm praying and I'm reading my Bible and evangelizing. No, those are things you're doing, though. That doesn't save you. You can't be saved that way. Christianity is God came and sent His Son to die for my sins. And when I hear that in a testimony, I'm like, okay. Okay, they understand. Tell me how you became a Christian. Well, I I believed in Jesus. He, He died for my sins. He rose from the grave. Okay, you're in. It's really simple, actually. It's not a litmus test. You don't have to have fancy, esoteric, academic arguments. Tell me about the Trinity and about the Council of Nicaea. It's like, no, I believed Jesus died for my sins. Jesus saved me. I'm trusting him. He's my only hope. He's the only one I can trust to to fix this this embittered heart. Um, That's Christianity. He bore the curse for us. Do you know when Adam and Eve, I'm closing with this, I promise. We're still on the shorter side here for me, right? I'm closing with this. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and the whole earth was plunged into rebellion and sin and God came, you know what he did? He cursed the earth because of the man and then he banished them. He exiled them. He sent them out. This makes me want to cry talking about it. He sent them out of the garden. And you know what he did? He stationed at the entrance to the garden 
This is pretty cool, actually. An angel, and in Hebrew it says a cherub with flaming swords. Swords is plural. A cherub with flaming swords. Imagine that? Like one of those lightsabers, but angelic. Now, why do, you think, why do you think God had to do that? He had to station a guard at the entrance to the garden. Why? That's right. Don't you think people would have wanted to go back in there, especially when Adam and Eve told them, hey, there's this killer garden over here. Literally, dude, it's killer. Just try to get in and you'll see it. No, and, but the garden represented the presence of God. And what sin did is it cast us out of his presence. We were banished. We were exiled. So how do we get back into the presence of God? How? Somebody had to come. Somebody had to come and bridge the gap between a holy and a just God and alienated sinners who had strayed far from him, right? Jesus came and he did that. But you know what it cost him? See, everyone wants to talk about the love of God and the good news and lovey-dovey sentimental stuff, but they don't want to talk about God's wrath. And listen, friends, God's love is not cheap. If you don't talk about the wrath and the judgment of God, you gut the good news. You gut the best part of the gospel because in order for us to get back in God's presence, somebody had to go through those flaming swords, metaphorically, okay? Somebody had to get slaughtered because sin demands death as punishment. It demands it. God's just. He can't just forget sin. He's got to forgive it. That means somebody has to face the penalty. So Jesus on the cross, do you realize he was banished from God's presence? He was slaughtered for us. That's what, all, that's what every single sinner who's ever lived deserves, is to be banished forever in hell from God's presence and to be slain. But Jesus said, I'll take the punishment you deserve. I'll enter God's presence and it's going to mean, it's going to mean that I'm going to get destroyed. I'm going to get slaughtered. He was. He, he was slaughtered, the Bible says. He was crushed for our iniquities. He bore the, the wrath of God on our behalf. The Father crushed him, Isaiah 53 says. But he rose from the grave victoriously to prove to us that Jesus, his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And that's why the gospel is good news. We can be back in God's presence now if you trust him. And the, and the final verse that I have for you, you say, well, what do I do? I believe all of that. That's, one, that's the best news in the world. But what do I do? Very simple. You know what Paul said later in Romans? He said, what does it say? The Old Testament, again, pointing back to the source. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. What word, Paul? That is the word of faith that we proclaim. He's talking about the gospel. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 13 says, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want to ask you, just very seriously this morning. The news, hopefully, has been very clear to you. Um, we're all under a curse. We've all broken God's law. None of us have aimed at God's glory. We've aimed at our own desires. We've strayed far from Him. We deserve His wrath. Second point is we're helpless. There's nothing we can do to get God back in God's presence. Nothing we can do to rescue ourselves. It's going to require outside help. Okay? Mayday. Mayday. I can't get that out of my mind. And the look on his face, this is serious. We need outside help. Have you ever called, I don't mean to be cheesy here, but have you ever called a mayday on God? God, I need, I need you. You've got you to gotta save me. Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. I want to trust you, not in myself. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done what Paul said to do here? It's, it's so simple. The good news is just so unbelievable that most people don't believe it. And they say, no, surely there's got to be more to this. There's something I've got to do. No. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. 
Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Have you ever called on the name of the Lord and said, Jesus, please forgive me of my sins? If you haven't, you don't have to walk down an aisle. You don't have to understand complex arguments. All you have to do is with sincerity, call out to God even from where you're sitting right now. 